Okay, that is the final song on the Palmetto Christmas EP. And, of mm. course, you can only get the Palmetto Christmas EP by joining Emeryland. But the good news is there's a free trial of Emeryland for anybody who buys tickets to watch Emory, the concert, coming up here in January. We've got the I'm Only a Man, lot of special, and we have the Week's End. And those, those are January the 9th and 27th, and those are both very special events. I don't know if you've seen the clips on the internet, but look at our Instagram. I like Facebook that title, Matt, Emory the Concert. That Emory the like Concert. a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell I'm not actually reading ad copy, but it almost sounds like right. it from my own brain. Yeah. But I don't have a real teleprompter there or ad notes. But, yeah, Emory the Concert coming that soon. That sounds pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so you get the whole chain there. You can Palmetto is a, a new project that you can get, but it's, it's, it's exclusive. It's not on Spotify, no, no public releases. That's just one of the things we do right. for Emeryland. So that will eventually launch publicly, but we're developing it and incubating it and letting it find out what it is in our own ecosystem in Emeryland. And so that's kind of and part of getting feedback strategy. from Emeryland, too. That's, that's right. what I think is really cool about it. Yes. In fact, I need to say this because we, we just kind of put it out low-key, but as a member of Emeryland, somebody in our community, uh, Luke Simmons, who – Arranged one of the songs, in fact. It was so, an yeah. Emory fan. Uh, I actually, he might not be an Emoryland technically, I don't know. But either way, he is one of our supporters on AYL and always is around our streams and participates in our community. I'm assuming he's an Emoryland member. But um, we've collaborated with him on a couple of things. He's a brilliant piano player that we just met you know, online and who yep. was into our music, and he's a great musician. So I, we asked him to arrange one of these Palmetto Christmas songs. And the third and final song, this one that you're hearing, is, in fact, arranged by a fan. Luke Simmons, he's terrific. You can find him on Instagram. Uh, Miraculous Canvas, I believe, is his Instagram handle. Today's show, we could talk back about that, but let me also let you know today's show is sponsored by Quip, the makers of my favorite electric toothbrush and reusable floss pick. Quip, good habits. Good habits are what matter most for your dental care. So go to getquip.com slash badchristian and get your first refill pack for free. Mm. Great job, Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy because we recorded the the special and it's so awesome and I can't wait for people to see it and it just feels like it's like I'm a kid waiting for Christmas to happen but I have to wait till after Christmas for everybody to see it because guess what I ain't seen it yet I know I haven't got to see the special I'm I'm so excited about it I literally when we did it I I mean I've said this a million times it's the best thing maybe I've ever done musically so. Hopefully it comes sooner than later. Get get here 2021, right? It's the year of, of everything good. Oh, it's going to be a good year. <laughs> it's going to be a good one. All right, so uh, I got something I want to talk to you about. What's that? Um, well, I'm realizing that I'm at this stage now with my kids where I'm saying things that I never thought I would say, and if I would have heard myself say them when I was my kid's age, I would have thought I was a idiot or a jerk Mm -hmm. or not a good dad, right? Okay. So I wrote down a couple, and I wanted to try them out on you. These are real things that I've said in the last week. Okay. All right, you ready? Okay. Are you going to act it out, or are you just going to read a list? I'm going to show you how they – You're about to act. I'm going to show you how they received it. Okay, you're going to give it to me as they received it. You are my kids right now. You are my kids right now, right? Let me me get – all right, I'm your kids now. If I have to pick up an empty bag of pirate's booty from the bedroom floor again, you will lose Roblox for a week. <laughs> and right, that was your, that was your delivery? As yes. close as you could. Okay. Yeah, you're going to see a theme here. Okay. 
the computers. Hey, hey, y'all hear me? Hey, turn them <laughs> off. <laughs> now, what's funny is they're upstairs and they, they're on their computers right now. I bet they might come down and ask me. Yeah, there's no difference in you doing that now and when you right. did it the first time to them in the next room over right now. Exactly. Now, uh, the reason I'm yelling is because I don't get up to go to them and tell them, hey, y'all turn off the computer. So I yell from my basement. So you all- can disguise your anger, frustration, and, and uh, just, you know, jadedness in life for uh, yeah. n- necessity of volume. Right. Sometimes I'm mad and sometimes I'm not. So some of these I'm not that mad. <clears throat> all right. This one I didn't yell, but this is something I said. Well, I'm not the one that needs to know the commutative property right now for this test, am I? <laughs> <laughs> you get him with the snark when the when your voice oh, yeah. gets tired. Yeah. Yep. All right. Here's the next one. You heard me say, "Do not go back into the sun sunroom." You heard? No. Uh, no. Do not lie to me because that will really get you into trouble. That's a <laughs> really big mistake, and I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> when they lie to, oh, 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 you do not want to go there with the lie. You do not want to lie to dad right now. That's always been mysterious. Why, you know, people, they, the, you know, the thing about the lies, the, the worst part, it, it, that's kind of not true most of the time. It usually is, if they do little lies, you don't really care. It is the thing that they broke that you're mad about. Right. I don't really care. Yeah, the 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 lie because I mean I lie all that's the just, time. That's just what you can hold. That's just what you can use to invoke disappointment on a level that you think might be effective. Is shame that thing about the lie. Yeah, you can yeah. invoke shame on it without with it making sense because you don't want right. to shame them for the thing like being clumsy. But right. if they lie, you go ah, I'll use a little shame here. That ought to help. It's so funny too, like the commutative property. I have n- had no clue what that was. Didn't it? Didn't it, zero crease in my brain to remember that. My daughter, you know, she's in fifth grade and was learning this or whatever. And I, I was like, man, it, I, I'm yelling at her or to get this done for this test. She's got to do it. But it, it doesn't really matter to her life. She, I mean, you, you understand the community property just means two plus three is the same as three plus two, right? But you well, got to attach this huge word to it right. so that you can uh, yeah. pass the test. And exactly. I understand to an extent wanting to know more terms and the right words for the right things and the right, you know, all, I get it. But at the same time, I'm like, man, you just get, you, uh, you'll understand that and won't, you won't need to know the term for it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you, right. you won't need that. And so you're going to forget it the same as me. And so it has, I mean, it's really been, Jess and I were talking last night about college and we were like, man, you know, uh, grandma's putting a little bit of money and she, grandma is going to help us and put a little bit of money in the grandbaby's, uh, an account for them, you know, like a trust or, or something like that. And I was so happy about that. I was like, man, that is just so awesome. It's really great. Wow. Um, and then I was like, and Jess was like, you know, and we got plenty, you know, we got several years before they'll go to college. And I was like, are they going to college? I mean, isn't COVID speeding things up so quickly that, I'm almost certain college will not look at all like college in 10 years when my kids are in college, right? I, I mean, it, right. It, isn't college one of the most industries that's like, oh, what are we talking about? you got to go get a four-year degree, and everybody's – I mean, one of the biggest topics in the world is debt from college. I mean, it's horrific. It's a oh. horrific – I mean, really bad. I mean, the – trillions of dollars of debt because you were told right. you got to go get your degree and then you That's can't hardly point. use it or get anything. That's so, a good I mean, point. Think about how much, um, think about like it, there's a political issue called college debt. 
Okay. Now, the reason that's a big deal is very obvious because it is a terrible affliction, burden, oppressive force on many. Right. Right? Yes. Okay. Now, you got to go to college. Yeah, I know. You got That's to. That's what I was told. So, and why do you got to go to college? <laughs> you know, it's, there's something right. obviously wrong with that puzzle. Like, it's so bad going to college that it's going to put you in a group that's going to need billions and trillions of dollars of relief soon. Right. Does that make sense? And that thing that's going to put you in a category that's going to need trillions of dollars of a relief, worse than a natural disaster, worse than, I mean, the, the right. amount of relief, economic relief needed for this afflicted group is the group that went to college. Right. Which you're supposed to go to <laughs> right. to, make, to increase the quality of right. your life. But in fact, the results show very clearly <laughs> something else. So yeah. there's something wrong somewhere that is eventually going to have to get understood or reckoned with. But it can't be everybody go to college, everybody get the debt forgiven, and oh, no. nobody get jobs. That can't be the f- – obviously that's not in the future, is it? No, that can't be the answer. <laughs> it just, it's the most nonsensical but, formula yeah. you could have ever heard. But Jet, that's what we were talking about. And, you know, we were, we were going over the idea, well, you could go to, uh, you know, the tech school first to get your prerequisites. And I was, I'm like, but that whole system is just such a scam. Your prerequisites to learn the, the thing you need to learn? You have well, to get the commutative uh, properties uh, uh, a prerequisite apparently for I mean, being a well, nurse. That's what I'm saying. Like, like, I mean, what in the world? Like, yeah, exactly. If you want to be a nurse, the number one thing you need to do is not spend have to spend two or three years doing other stuff so that you're well rounded. I understand the well rounded thing, but you don't remember it anyway. You're just doing it to pay for it. Mm-hmm. That's it. That the the college wants you to pay for the elective and the thing and you know. Oh, it's. A, I mean, and, it, and I'm pro a, college in the sense of hanging out and having fun. I love oh, yeah. college. Me too. I Party. loved it. Worth oh my it. god! But not worth the debt and not worth. The, I mean, my my biggest uh, invention ever was if you could buy an old apartment and just start a YouTube college and every you know everybody just lives in like a dorm situation, but you just kind of learn on your own. You know, you have a couple of counselors that say, "Hey, what do you want to do?" And it, People and then, laugh like, at you for that. Oh, I know. But, it, but that's say, just because everybody knows that nobody could be self-motivated. Right. That's, how, that's why everybody would laugh at you for being so stupid as that. Because who would be self-self-motivated to actually do, you know, mature and grow on purpose for the, the, the direction you wanted to? Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the worst part about college anyway is it's that uh, – this probably isn't the right way to see it, but it's almost like that appeal to authority. That right. you know, it like a credentialing like, system. Yeah, yeah, a credentialing, a credentialing system, and the the idea of um, if I have this, then I am something more. Correct. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I have this, then I'm not just you know. I, I mean, for example, some of the smartest people I ever met were working on my cars. They didn't go to college. They did a trade, and but the, but they are smart and know the the whole. The whole idea of this is what intelligence is is really fucked up. Are that, all, that's all the, those the rednecks that are just so dumb and not good? Are they are they about to get a trillions of dollars of relief for not going to college? No, nope. you know nope. what I'm saying, right? Like, isn't something right. really weird about that? I know that's what I'm saying. I'm not and, saying they're about to do that, but also, the, yeah, right the idea that they are dumb and the other people aren't. That's what that, I mean. If, like, if well, you can't if you can't get a three point oh, they're smart enough to get a trade job, and in the future, they'll also right. still have great jobs. When the people who right. thought they were the middle class, compliant class do-gooders are ain't gonna have shit. They're gonna have debt right. and no jobs. 
But they didn't ever want to work in a mechanic anyway. They didn't ever want to do a trade. They didn't want to do a plumber. Plumbers are getting oh, rich. Right. And they're going right. to continue to. Ain't, ain't no AI going to replace plumbing anytime soon. But no, the rest of true. y'all better watch the fuck out. <laughs> I, mean, you, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Is that that's a big shift. You, nobody sees that, saw that coming. Right. But like, if, you're, if you can't work really hard and you're not tough and you had a bunch of college debt and you always listened to what everybody told you to do and you thought they were right and you were going to show that you were above average and, you know, you, you, you I mean, that's not a great position to be in right now with what's being, right. you know, it's just not a great position. But it seemed all, that's what everybody told you to do. Right, and so that's what I'm we saying. feel the, bad, the, and now the plumbers are going to pay taxes to bail your fucking ass out. Yeah, you're right. Now, at the same time, though, you were told a you were sold a bill of goods that was a lie, is what I think. Yeah, and I know. There's, no, mean, way, there's no way out of it. You're, I mean, people, you're one who, of those people. Well, yeah, I'm one of them. You have also, a giant amount of student debt, don't you? Well, how about how about yeah, I do. And also, what about uh, I was told you got to buy a house, you got to buy one. So I did in 2006, yeah. and I could hardly get out from under it and lost a bunch of money. And, but guess what? You can at least you know, lose your house or go bankrupt with a student loan. You can't do anything. You just have it. I know. That's, that's it. what I'm saying. What you're a racket. Just locked in. I know. I yeah. mean, you can't even get any relief or, or something. I mean, it, it just, I mean, it's going, the thing that I think people don't understand is it will help the world. The, the debt thing isn't going to get better. It's not like people all of a sudden are going to really pay their debts and be able to do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, not paying them saying I'm can. against it. Just pay no, them no, off. I know you're but not. let's not no, do it. Right. Let's not do that anymore. Right. Let's not do no, that again. Right. That's I'm the saying. point. No, like, let's pay this one off. We tricked you when you were uh, 18 years old. I right. got all of my T-shirts when I went to Clemson in 1997. I got all of my T-shirts by signing up for credit cards when I was 17 right. years old. <laughs> right. That's where I got the T-shirts. I feel, Oh, now, I know. I was smart enough to not feel, apply for those credit cards with my real information. I just filled out the paper with the wrong address, phone right. number, et cetera, many, many times. Right. Where there was, when, I, when I'm 17 years old, left the house for the first time, nobody to talk to, no idea what I'm supposed to do, except for the smiliest people in the world trying to give me T-shirts were there right. the first week away from home. But all I had no. to do was apply at for credit college. Card. Yeah, at the college. I mean, on campus. <laughs> I'm saying outside of the cafeteria oh, is where right. they were. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> it was really funny. So, like, in, what year was that? 97. So, in 97, Dennis Jankowitz was like, what the fuck is happening to the Yeah, I got 40 credit cards this yeah. week sent to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whoever you made up your made-up name. Yeah. <laughs> What the hell did I do? It, it's just a racket. It just 100% is. But I'm saying the big thing with COVID, and I guess people are realizing it or not, that there ain't no normal, and we ain't going back, and everything has changed forever, that, and that and the, it's maybe good. Well, it's just, and we, the, this is the growing pains language. and the pain. This is the pain that we have to go through to get to something better Let's because the it. stuff was broken. The, the, yes. the school... The school, the money system, the power, all that. I mean, the, the, all this stuff. I mean, I, I don't know. It may, maybe it won't get better. I'm not saying that it, this is a fix-all. But I'm saying it's speeding stuff up. You're going to see, I mean, restaurants are changed forever, right? Yeah, but you don't, just they, say, you don't, you don't have to say that thing. I figured out you can't. You don't need to tell them it's not going back because that's like a sided thing. You could just say nobody really will resist you if you just talk about the pace of change has increased and will continue oh, to increase. Yeah. So everybody knows change happens. So you don't. Ha- but there's no going back. In theory, everybody knows that. But to say that sounds like you're making some hard stance. But no, it's just a matter of speed. But the speed dial has sped up a lot. I don't know that it slows down. 
So things won't be whatever way things are now. It'll never go back to either. <laughs> right. <laughs> really shortly from now. So I it's just change that we're in for. And so, of but course, it's that's change, painful, so it's, let's do it. Yeah, it change and pain. It's both it, it's both of those for maybe right. a while. Yeah, no, forever. Maybe. Forever. You, it might not be pain forever. Well, I'm I saying mean, maybe change. our lifetime. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, I'm telling you, p- pain and change go together. Change yes. is going to increase at the, its yes. pace forever. And the speed at which pain comes towards you, it might not be as bad a pain, but new it, types of I, yeah. pain will come at you with a faster velocity well, than they previously we're getting, did. We're getting more used to it. I'm just saying, like, 2020, or the last four years, we've been like, oh, God, it just keeps going. Oh, this feels awful. I'm saying that feeling might uh, subside a bit. Yeah. But there there will be new pain and new for stuff coming. With the, right, right. For whatever. I'm just saying the amount of things that come where you go, holy shit, I've got to adapt to this right. now, that will always right. be painful, and the speed of those things happening in one's life is going to go up. Right. Do you know what I mean? But, yes. Like, but you're also, there's a few times in your yeah. life where you go, in a, in a, for the last hundred years, there's a few times in people's lives where they go, oh, shit, this is a big change. We're going to have to adapt. The frequency yeah. of those events will increase. Right. I'm not saying how bad they are or what they are or anything like that. I just think like the, the idea that, speaking specifically about college, the idea that spending that time will make you a great worker isn't true. This, you know what I mean? Like, like, do you care the the guy that comes and, like you said, a plumber or you know a carpenter or something? Do you care about the college that he went to or the or the training that he got if he just does a great job? All you care yeah. about is he does a great job, right? So you want somebody to care about their job more than the the training because the training meant if they care about their job, that means they would have done good at the training anyway, regardless of what that training looked like or what they spent. How much time? If somebody can really, uh, you know, remodel your basement phenomenally, how long do you care how long they trained? What if they trained for one week, but, man, your basement looks amazing? Well, I don't perfect. know about you, Toby, but I always like to see the registration with the Better, Better Business Bureau <laughs> and the local government. That's how I know they're good. Right. I, like, uh, how about, yeah, that's the same thing as the restaurants that have a B on the front of them. You know what I mean? You're like, uh-oh, I can't eat there. Yeah. What like, like the the A restaurant just squeaked by or something? You know they yeah, didn't yeah, do anything. Yeah. I mean they just got one thing happened and they got a, or, the, or the guy didn't like them. But you don't want to see now the C you gross. Yeah, C C's fucking nasty shit. <laughs> but a B, good lord. But uh, do they even do that anymore? I don't no, even I don't see those so. anymore. They probably so. don't even do that anymore. I'm just saying overall, it's all going to change. So my kids, who I'm yelling at, uh, they have I have zero clue. I cannot tell them what their future looks like. I can't exactly. And I'm I'm actually kind of happy about that. I am not telling. Them, hey, listen, you got to do this, this, and this, and plan right. this way, right? Because so that doesn't ability, mean anything. Their ability to modify their own amount of types of things, like learning or change, and to handle those things, is the only meta skill that is going to matter. It's not a set of yeah. of of knowledge that's going to help them. It's a, it will be meta skills, right? Because because that pain, you have to do that pain to figure out even who you are. That's the thing we just been we just been avoiding pain for so long. That's what we're trying to do. We're all trying to do that, and I would say most of the two thousands, like it, like nine eleven hit. Nine eleven no, hit. Hundred thousand years. That's what. We've oh been yes. For. No, but I'm I'm saying just in my lifetime, I yeah. feel it more in in the two thousands than I did when I was a kid. I felt like in the eighties and nineties or something. It was. Mm-hmm. It, it, we always try to avoid pain, but I felt like it was just more. Well, you got to get through this or something. And now we just go. Now you got to get away from it. That's the way I feel like, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you got to 
somehow you got to get away from it. You got to numb it. You got to avoid it. You got to do something. And it just, it, and so now it's here and we, and lots of folks don't know how to handle it. Yeah. It, you, you know what I mean? Like you well, are, you, we, yes. people are going to lose their jobs and their lives. People mm-hmm. are going to suffer. It's going to be shitty for a while. And we have to learn how to live in that yeah. and, and grow and figure out the new way to be. And, yes. and, and it'll be good, but it's just now, I mean, but there isn't an answer right now. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, we were talking our text there. It's, it's hilarious. Trump said he'd have a vaccine before the end of the year, and he did it. Now, it's not he didn't him. Yeah. No, I know, but I'm, saying, but I'm saying he said his, under his administration or whatever. Yeah. I'm, yes, no, he had nothing to do with it. He's not, <laughs> what if he did? That'd be the, man, don't you think he wish he had a picture of him, him with a beaker? Like, yeah, like, like he, he holds the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, like he right. held the Bible I'm, up, he wants to I'm hold a beaker? He didn't. I can't believe he didn't do that. If they were giving out vaccines <laughs> earlier this week, how could he not have shown up and given one? I mean, oh God, you're like, right. Or t- try to t- I can't oh, believe you did. Acting a fool out there. <laughs> but but I'm just saying it, it's crazy. Like we are moving so fast now that he can take credit for that because things are. Oh, yeah, we have he to. He just made a bet. Yeah. Right. No, he did. Yeah. But but yeah. I'm saying he was able to make that bet because you can do it now. Yes. The comp- There's so many companies. And there's so much, you know, tech and everything's happening. So if you can roll out a vaccine in under a year to stop a pandemic, what's coming next? What do you think will happen next? What, what, what happens awesome. when, the, it's unbelievable. When, the, when a company comes up with something else? I mean, of we, course there's going to be AI and robots walking around in 10 years. You of know course. that the, uh, that the, you know, we, this is, this is pretty amazing. I mean, you, this is just awesome with the vaccine. I'm ex- very excited about it, but the FDA still has other ones that they could have approved earlier to save more people at less effective rates. And they didn't want to give people the choice to even take it because it could have side effects and stuff, but it was effective enough. Yeah. But it, you know, if that, you know, like they're still over-regulating in a way they could have saved more lives, you know, Wow. But 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 I'm saying there's there's still other things that aren't approved that have been generated during this time period as right. well. I mean it's, right. it's I mean it's, you know I, I think wow guys we were doing great or something kind of is the way I feel about a lot of things. Well, I'm wondering what it's going to be like. Like we had a friend that worked at a lab a long time ago, remember? And uh, they were telling us like that they probably had cured herpes or something like that or hepatitis, one of the hepatitises or something like that. Mm-hmm. But. It wasn't going to go out yet because you got to do it the right way to make enough money on it or something. Yeah, like yeah, that, but right? I mean, you, but well, that's that's just the way it goes. I mean, like you could be. No, I know, to, but that's. But what, I'm I saying mean, you can't. It's not like I don't know. Right, you, but our, so that means our system is flawed because we yeah, rely oh, yeah. on you got you got to make the money. But what if you didn't have to make the money? Then would what? Maybe you'd I, have more. I mean, like, it's the maybe best we've mo- got. I mean, I, you know, right. I'm not extreme on any of that stuff. I, the risk management is well, a, no, you know, but it's got to be. But I'm saying, my point would be. What if everybody was like, "Oh, wait, maybe we can get off this money system somehow, or what, or change the way the money system has, or maybe it's not socialism well, yeah, or capitalism." Well, that's or what, what we're going to see know. a lot of revisions in institutions in the right. next in your kids in our lifetime, right? Like, that's what. Yeah, that's probably the most significant types of. I mean, I guess that's the theme of all the rambly shit we're talking about. But you know, when you, do you think we're going to see think, those changes occur, and there'll be winners and losers? You know, if if you had to take a gamble, when do you think you will? Be able to take the vaccine, and then second question: Will you take it? Well, I mean, somebody needs to rewind the damn tape because I I guarantee you I had a vaccine timeline projection on this podcast that's turned out to be probably something like dead on. But I think it'll be fall. I think it'll be fall, and I'll be happy to get it. You know? Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, I'll be able to get a vaccine by April, and one of the reasons why I think that is because. 
I think a lot of people aren't going to get it. And it just comes think, to you sooner that way. I think a like lot of people. Up? I think a lot of people are going to go. Ah, I don't because you're hearing like little symptoms and stuff like uh, Bell's palsy or uh, little stuff like that. Which I'm 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 not saying it will even. Do, I mean that is a very small minority of people probably would have those symptoms. I believe I might be wrong about that, but it's enough to. I mean, how many people don't take vaccines already? I mean, it's just millions. Gonna, yeah, you're right, but it doesn't matter. And the same thing's going to happen as a result. It'll be the people that don't take it will tend to be probably people more likely to believe in conspiracy theories, lower income people. I don't know people, if that's true. This in this know, instance, I don't know. I think the speed of it, even though the trials and everything were the same, I I, I think I people think aren't ready fact, for something so quick. I think that just like just like the, the the move to get people to vote, people in the worst communities with the least resources. You know they're not the most. They're the that they're the ones that that the public policy is trying to help. But often that by their own, whatever the situation is, they have trouble engaging with the policy kind yeah. of a thing. So it's probably still going to be the lower class people that get don't get vaccinated enough for that, and so they'll sure. continue to have bad outcomes. You know, is a kind of a, a worry. I well, think. here's what I would say. First of all, we don't have enough data on long-term effects of COVID. Some people are saying there could be some long-term effects. Maybe it take, you know, maybe there really is some lung scar tissue in your lungs or something, you know. We just don't there's not enough data after the fact. It's not just the flu. So I understand that that there is danger there, but it's not absurd to say right now with what you know, wait, I'm going to take this vaccine or just chance having COVID. Oh, it's a completely legitimate choice. I'll take you know the I mean? vaccine, but I you know understand. I, mean? I don't think I mean, it's bad not cause, to. Cuz I know, sadly, so many people die from this, but ma- mass majority survive it. So you could go, oh, I'll just take the, I'll just get my antibodies that way. I know I'll feel sick and all that stuff, but at least I know in some ways, maybe I know a little bit more about COVID than I know about this vaccine. I can, I'm saying I can just see somebody rationalizing that, and it's not a stupid oh, person no, doing no, that. No, it's not. No, no, I'm not saying you'd have to be right. stupid not to take the vaccine. Many smart people will not for very good reasons, and. It's not about that. I'm just saying the the whole in the in the whole way, it will be, you know, it's hard to know to make those choices. But I, you know, for I think lower, the the I mean, you can't. I don't know how it's, it seems delicate yeah. to talk about. The, that's what I'm saying. That the language of all this is crazy. But the, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't worried about COVID. They're not worried enough to get the vaccine either. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. They're not worried enough to be take a lot of health precautions. They're not worried enough to. You know, so getting the vaccine is just not higher on their list of priorities. We'll see what happens. I don't know, but it ain't. It's all. It's all changing faster and faster and faster than anybody can comprehend. So don't hold on to anything because it'll change tomorrow. I mean, there you go. I mean, who's going to be our president in the next year or two? Or th- I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, it's I. I Fully, it's the most clear thing to me in the world that Trump lost. I was basically certain of it that night, but the idea that it's still going and then it's an oddly old, quiet right now. It's a little weird, isn't it? I know it's, it's oddly just, quiet. It's but. just strange, and I, I don't understand why. I mean, it's just Biden is so old. Is golly so old? And I'm just like, how you think he is won't he go through four years? You don't think he'll stay four years? Can he make it? I don't know. I mean, I mean, think about this. COVID helped him the most possible. He didn't have to go out for a long time because I mean, when I see him, it it's, it's like labored breathing. You ever hear him? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if if, if, if you know. It's it, I. I wouldn't know what to. 
to, to trust coming from media of what is his normal state or anything. You well, know what I'm saying? I mean, like, whenever I catch him, me, it, it's some weird looking. It, you know what I'm saying? Every time? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, every time. I, I don't know. I, I just that's what I'm saying. You're maybe, right. Though, okay. In that, it's not like you don't see him in normal extended situations. Maybe is this? Maybe he's as I fit agree. as a 68 year old. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But, <laughs> that's a long time ago for him. Yeah. But yeah. I'm just saying. I, I I mean, you won't be surprised if anything happens. Come no. I mean, no way. No way. Nothing. So that's yeah. Nothing I mean, would that, surprise it. me. It, it, no, I agree with that. I do think it is institutional, you know, change that will yeah. be the thing we'll get to observe. I don't know what's going. to – I mean, you know, who knows what. But uh, right. a, a part of the sensitivity about this, or for me, or the the understanding of it was being so close to the Mars Hill thing. So our guest today is Jessica Johnson, and she is a professor at William and Mary, and she just published a fascinating study. It's called Biblical Porn. Affect, Labor, and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire. And she did it uh, with Duke University Press. So uh, we thought that was a must-have kind of guest. And uh, just seeing the Mars Hill thing from our point of view, as it was a big system, and you know, we have a conversation here about Mars Hill and how it was a system and some of the things that happened there are playing out in wider culture. So I think this would be a... Anyway, we thought she'd be a fantastic guest, and she'll be on here in just a second. Toby, you got a piece of business in front of you? I sure do. You know what uh, affects my life the worst out of all of 2020 is when I get I eat a lot of that uh, low-calorie popcorn. I love it. But those damn kernels get stuck in my teeth. And, like, sometimes they'll even slide up under the gum, and it's just there. And I'm, like, trying to – you know, I used to just try to get it out with my tongue or a toothpick or something. I mean, talking about old technology, a toothpick. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's old, old. – so it's time for something new, and damn it, if Quip Electric Toothbrush didn't come out with something amazing, a reusable floss pig. Y'all know, you've, you've heard us talk about Quip, uh, the company, and their electric toothbrush, but now, I'm telling you, they have a reusable floss pick that you will just have to use next. It's a durable handheld, uh, easy, easy, sorry, the durable handle is easy to guide. It restrings with a click and comes with a compact mirrored dispensing case for on the go. So you can travel with this thing. Plus, a single refill pod replaces over 180 single use plastic flossers. You know, those things are getting, it filling up landfills everywhere. Quip's yeah. like, no, 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 no. We got something way better for you. Not a pick person. Quip also has refillable floss string that expands to clean. I'm telling you, they thought of everything. Pair your floss with the perfect electric toothbrush, which I have and love. I have both these, actually. Quip has the simple guiding features you need, like timed sonic vibrations with guiding pulses that help you brush better. And you can personalize your routine with over nine premium brush colors. Mine is black, and I love it. I call it Midnight. I call my because of Quip, my named my toothbrush. Seriously, bring delight to everyday brushing and join over five million mouths brushing with Quip, starting at only twenty five dollars. So this holiday season, check out Quip's exclusive deals. And if you get to and if you go to quip.com slash bad Christian right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at quip.com slash bad Christian. And that's spelled G E T Q U I P dot com slash bad Christian. Quip, better oral health made simple. Hey there, Jessica. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Going very good. All right. We have Jessica Johnson here. And we found out about you because some listeners of our podcast were like, hey, you got to check this out because we always talk about or have over the years. 
have always talked about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill and the implosion of it because it's just fascinating because I was a worship leader at the West Seattle campus. I led worship there from, uh, let's see, 2011 to 2012. Um, things started around tw- 2012. I started getting a really strange, weird vibe. Uh, I'm just telling you a little bit about my story. It felt like everybody that I was that was work I was coming in contact with were like uh, little smaller copies of Driscoll. His personality was so strong, you know, and so I just started getting a, a weird vibe, and I couldn't even. It was so strong his personality that I couldn't even just say, "Hey, I'm feeling weird. I want to quit." So I just said, "Hey, Matt and I are in a band," and so I was like, "I'm just going to focus more on music and kind of do that," and which was true, but. It, the underlying thing there was that the church was getting stranger and stranger. So anyway, some listeners of our podcast told us about your book, Biblical Porn, Effect, Labor, and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire. And so we thought it'd be great (laughs) to have you on. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So my first question is, when I saw biblical porn, I I was thinking, uh, what what does this mean? So just give us a little bit about your, just give us a little intro into your book, what, what was happening with it. Yeah, so I started attending in 2006 to 2008 as a researcher. Um, So I was going to the Ballard campus at that point in time. And the first time that I showed up at the Ballard campus in 2006 fall, um, before uh, Mark even started preaching, he was telling that joke from Talladega Nights um, about little baby Jesus, thank you for my smoking hot wife, right? (laughs) And... um, and I had never been to a mega church before. My background was at that point as a Christian, um, was as a Catholic. So um, I had known those kinds of services before, but I'd never seen something like that. Um, and so when Mark told that joke, people started laughing. And it was not just the joke itself, although that was certainly surprising, but it was the fact that he also went, like gestured on stage from the pulpit like he was slapping his wife's ass. <laughs> and I was <laughs> he did what? I don't even remember that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is yeah, this is um this was when he was doing the first round of the vintage Jesus um sermon series. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was like the early first round of that. Um and so I was and I was actually there for my dissertation research at that time, which was on the um politics of marriage in relationship to the legalization of gay marriage. So I actually wasn't there to, you know, investigate Mars Hill Church per se. It was more like, okay, these people are not protesting the same way that other churches are, right, right, around this issue. At that point, Mars Hill had a very kind of liberal um, vibe and atmosphere, culturally speaking. And a lot of people even around Seattle generally would say, oh, that church is... Seems kind of cool, you know. Right. Seems kind of mm-hmm. cool. They they show movies. They have all these events around the city. So you know, it was it was interesting to me. And then uh, somebody told me that like a young a lot of young folks were going there. So um, that was another attraction to me. I just wanted to check it out because I was like, okay, this is a way for me to think about marriage politics around gay marriage without that like for or against kind of polarization and and that kind of oppositional. So, um, so that was really fascinating to me. And then, so when I saw that and heard the laughter, I was like, you know, this is a different way for me to think about evangelical sexual politics, right? And, yeah. and kind of what was happening there on the ground, especially attractive to younger folks um, who a lot of, and, you know, I, when I was there, saw a lot of college t-shirts and um, sweatshirts around, you know, so yeah. a lot of young people. So I was just, I was really fascinated by that alone. 
Um, and then biblical porn kind of developed from my understanding that, I mean, really any opportunity he had, Mark would talk about sex, you know, yeah. in a very um, objectifying way towards women. You know, I, I was there during the Peasant Princess series when he was, you know, basically talking about women's breasts all the time in relationship yeah. to the scripture and his interpretation of oral sex through that scripture as well. Um, and, and also the, the gender dynamics of that, right. Where it was like, you know, real men need to have sex at least once a day. Right. And for, for Christian wives to, you know, perform their wifely duties properly to these men, then they would have to submit to whatever kind of sexual desires, whenever and however they happened. Right. And so I could see already that this dynamic was very unhealthy um, and very pornographic in the way it, it very much objectified women at the same time that Mark would preach about, you know, um, porn addiction and how men could not help themselves, but be lustful and desiring of women that they would just encounter in their everyday lives all the time. Right. Or, you know, going into a grocery store and seeing a Cosmo cover could, you know, stimulate something. So then all of a sudden wives are, are feeling this kind of responsibility and, and fear really about having to perform sex properly and whenever their husbands wanted in order to keep them, keep them fidelitous in the marriage, right? To keep them and to basically save them from sexual sin. How, how much did you go to Mars Hill? You were going every, for your research, you'd go every week? Yeah, I was going to services every uh, Sunday um, and I tried to switch it up, you know, in terms of the time, because at that point, you know, sometimes it was like five times a day on a Sunday mm -hmm. that Mark would preach. And then I would go to like gender and sexuality seminars. There was one that was co-ed that I went to in my, the early stages. It was like 2006, 2007. Um, that was interesting. And then I went to also the, the gender segregated, you know, kind of gender and sexuality seminars for women specifically. Like there was one at the time, it was like a female, what, like saving female sexual purity or something along those lines, right? Um, and then there was another one that was about um, biblical womanhood, you know, so I learned a lot about complementarianism, got really seeped in that um, through attending that stuff. But I also, you know, went to gospel classes that were there for membership. That's a lot. Yeah, that's no. a lot of. I mean, you yeah, did a lot of research here. Did you make relationships and like? Did people know what you were doing? I, I mean, I don't even understand. Yeah, that's so, a big investment. So, yeah, ethically speaking, as an anthropologist, I would definitely tell people that I was there as a researcher, right? Um, if it, you know, usually it would come up because people would would frequently ask, like, how long you've been attending? Are you a Christian? Right? Those were like right. the two questions that were often like asked right away. Um, but then you know, I would then that would give me the opening. But I couldn't formally interview anybody without Mark's permission at that time um, when I was attending as a, as a fieldwork researcher, ethnographically speaking. So, so for those two years, a lot of my interactions were, were casual. Um, it wasn't until, it's kind of a long story, but I finished my dissertation on the culture war you know, over marriage equality, basically. And then I had a gig in Miami for a year. After that, I came back to Seattle, started teaching at, at the University of Washington again, and that was the fall of 2012. And that's when people started coming forward publicly, right? Like stuff was coming out in the stranger um, interviews, you know, with former members and such about some of the right. disciplinary processes that were really, you know, micromanaging and problematic. Um, and then I also saw 
like Paul Petrie, a former pastor who had gotten fired, came out with this website called Joyful Exiles. So that was public. Um, and then eventually, like, you know, posts from other former pastors that either resigned or got fired um, were coming out. And so basically around 2013 is when I asked, re-asked this in anthropology, we have this thing called human subjects review that we're supposed to do. So I had to go back to this board basically and ask for permission again. Can I please talk to these people, you know, without Mark's permission because he wasn't going to give it to me. Right. right. Um, and so they basically said, well, okay, since the church, he's not really the leader anymore. Like things were already starting to fall apart there. So I actually started to talk to people around 2014, like that summer. And that actually it started off with me going to that protest that was outside of, at that point, the, um, Bellevue location. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so I, I went to that. that. I attended that. And at that point, I was standing with people, frankly. You know, yeah. I was like, I was actually feeling really worked up about all the things that I had seen happen there. And then also, like, the harm that had been done to people, you know. So I was actually with people standing there with, you know, one of those placards and, and, and protesting with them. And then um, through that kind of, you know, fellowship, um, then developed relationships that were a lot more intimate. I think it was so, I mean, obviously Matt and I are dudes and we were attracted to the church. I think it was, it was strange because so it felt like so many men were like most churches I've been to. It does feel like, uh, a lot of times the, the women, uh, bring the men even, or, or the, it, it feels like that. And this felt like, wait a minute, this guy is talking to me. So I, I, I'm supposed to be here too. Like I'm not just, you know, kind of the the silent dad that's around or the silent guy or whatever, you know. Like I'm wait, I'm supposed to, he's he's talking to me about sex with my girlfriend or what he's talking to me. So it, it felt in that way it felt something new and fresh and and invigorating because it felt like wait, man, cuz I I always feel like church really has dropped the ball a lot with masculinity and men and then Mark Driscoll took it 100 miles the other way, went super strong and then it, it it destroyed men, maybe even worse, the men that attended there. I felt, you know, let, let down by that whole idea that it didn't feel like it. In retrospect now, I almost feel like I was used. My masculinity was used as a tool to gain more churches and, you know, growth, growth for the church and all that stuff. But I think that was part of the, the, gr the growth strategy. It must have been. He, he did that stuff on purpose, act like he's going to slap his wife's ass because it, that did something. Well, whoa, the pastor's doing that. Like it, it makes you go, well, even if you disagree with it, you're definitely present in that Engaged, moment at church. Yeah. You're not letting your mind get float away. Yeah. And that's, that's really the, the point of affect in the, the subtitle of my book, right? Like that's what that's about. It's like getting involved, right? Through gestures, through emotions, right? in ways that sometimes we don't always comprehend in that moment, right? right? So yeah, that's a great description, Toby. That's exactly, I mean, that's what I saw happening in that laughter, right? And then I started to notice that kind of laughter around jokes otherwise too. I mean, there were the, the sexual kind of innuendos that were pretty consistent, um, but then there were also like Islamophobic jokes that Mark would, would say, and like a lot of that militarism that he would kind of preach about, you know, and I mean, War is not that uncommon for Christians to be talking about, and we certainly still hear it today. <laughs> um, but at that time, I was noticing that it was another way for him to kind of draw men together as like this fraternity of brothers, you know, like this band of brothers, the fight club stuff, 
Um, that was really predominant um, when he, when I was even attending from 2006 to 2008. I'm having a really, really good time right now because I uh, <laughs> I have a somewhat analytical, b- behavioral-minded type of brain, how I look at things. And I was in Mars Hill sitting in the same ballad room as you since 2006 or five. So I was in the same room with you tons of times, and I was analyzing Mark the whole time. I was with him, but nonetheless, I was very always noticing his patterns and how he communicated and how it's effective. And I'm a performer and a musician and a podcaster. And he was so good at all the layers of intangibles. I learned so much from him in about all of that stuff. And, and I always thought about it really analytically. I would notice when he would change his strategy, it was clear to me on the day that he realized in his toolkit that smiling is a good thing to do because he never would smile. And then all of a sudden he would pause when he finished saying something, he would make a smile. You won't be able to see it uh, at home, but he'd look like this. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get back into it. I was like pain. that. He, he, and I knew for sure based on his behavior, all the, I mean, I should have cataloged it and been studied researching like you. Um, but I just had a natural interest in it, but it was always, I could almost always find or trace where it came from or when he'd put a new behavior on and be able to understand how it was going to help. But at the time I was thinking brilliant, that's going to help the gospel mission blah, 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 blah. But I could still recognize that he was playing all the angles like that. Um, he, I would catch tons of stuff where he would pull from comics and podcasters yeah. and things that were like, there's no way the congregation is picking up on what he's piggybacking, but I, I could feel that he was a student of all these things and even on that super deep level, he must have been one of those kind of guys that understands the evolutionary basis of survival and how to speak to people's lowest, uh, you know, the things that are that were wired for in their, <laughs> you know, dopamine systems. He understood that type of influence on a deep level. It was very, maybe influence is the word for it, how to uh, or persuasion or whatever it was. It was just so clear that he was a student of those and would ch- modify his toolkit. Yeah, absolutely, Matt, 100%. I mean, like I said, that gesturing, the way he would use humor, you know, that was really interesting to me from the get-go. Um, and then also, like you said, like just the way that he would sometimes really make you feel, and this kind of piggybacks on what Toby was saying too, like close to him, right? Mm-hmm. So we'd be in the space with all the screens, you know, and he's projected on those screens, but the way that he would use his facial, right, expressions, mm-hmm. Yes. The way that he would use those pauses was so spot on and strategic. I mean, his background, apparently college was communication, right? Like that was what he was going to major. And so, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like he had an ability that he had cultivated over time where he was pretty savvy about that stuff early on. Yeah. And to be, to seem genuine. Mm-hmm. Was obviously a high value and for whatever way he would cultivate that. But he also was, somehow genuine in a real way too where he was able to i mean it's hard to look back at and and see too because it in that same way that you noticed that in 2006 and 7 it it was like seen as not so crazy and even by the local culture and then it got just weirder and weirder over time and farther and farther off. So to me, I always struggled with, well, this is so clearly disordered at this point, but when wasn't it? And was it, was it always, was it, and I have that question and, and, and not just about this issue in my life, but it's so disordering to be involved in a system like that. And I imagine the women were, that were involved and the complementary women and all the, all the way down, it makes you feel crazy to look back and go, was it always crazy though? 
or did it get worse? Was it ever genuine? Did that, I just totally put that, like, that's the confusion that I think it's left people with, or at least it leaves me with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people would talk about feeling traumatized, basically, for the very reasons that you're describing. I mean, they felt duped, they felt taken in, they felt manipulated, you know, and, and I remember asking that question, well, when did you start to kind of feel that way? And for some folks, it was like, um, from day one. Yeah, some <laughs> people, and they got over it. Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah. I was just duped. I just was in for the ride. Yeah. But some people were like, this isn't right. And then they swallowed it. And went, I, I feel so terrible about yeah. that. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it was abusive, you know, I mean, for sure. I don't know if you all ever had the experience of feeling bullied specifically by Mark or by any other people in your sphere when you were working there or attending, but I mean, I had definitely heard stories of that too. And yet people still stayed in, you know, they still, you know, devoted so much of their lives to that place. Well, the th brilliant thing was, you know, whenever you try to drill down to talk about it, the examples that we'll be able to pull up are not going to be extreme. They just, I just don't find them to be extreme even to this day. But the, uh, the culture as a unit across time and with its context it was extremely constrained at any given moment. You knew what you could and couldn't do based on how it would impact right. you socially in this real felt moment to me. Well, I can't, I can't say any, uh, that I disagree with that pastor because Mark just came in and gave him a big hug. Like that's not bullying, is it? But I cannot disagree with that pastor. That was right. in the tone. Uh, I can't, or whatever. It was, it was all put in there in a way that it, there's no individual th thing where he, said something mean to me that that I, I could go digging i don't find anything like that and that's just me some people he definitely cussed out <laughs> profoundly I, I know but um but it was really more in the tone is like you just don't the culture was so uh resonant with each other that it they were all many mark driscoll's and it just you at some point that became so clear that you know that's when you could tell it was weird but it was uh, it, was, it was very carefully laid out, like it is a very well-maintained system that to, to create that environment where the bullying was never overt, mostly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But oppressive, well, certainly the word. the same? Or? Uh, well, yeah, uh, working at the church, I got into, uh, so one, one time uh, uh, I was the worship leader. Uh, he came over to uh, West Seattle to preach that Sunday. He was going to preach live from that. You know, he would go around to the different campuses and preach live. And uh, the opening band, the band, that was the other thing I was going to say, too. The, the music was one of the, the, the best things about it because you could do anything. They, they said, you know, they didn't want the cheesy Christian music that every other other churches that you would go to. You know, you could play like rock music. They, I, they were totally fine. You know, Matt and I are in a rock band. They were totally fine with playing like rock and roll and worshiping and, you know, getting into it and stuff. All that was attractive. Like, I know, I, I think you might talk about it in your book, but uh, the paradox that they own. We, our band played there. We thought, whoa, a church is doing this and they're letting in bands that cuss and do, you know, aren't Christian. Man, this is what this church, that's the, like that whole idea going along. You didn't, part of you didn't want to disagree with people because, it felt like you were you were a part of something that was going to change the world. Like the pastors, they thought, wait a minute, I'm a campus pastor at a church that's going to be the biggest church in the world and change everything. Like you you bought into it. In yeah. lots of ways, it feels like you were talking about Driscoll's tactics and, and his skill. It feels similar in some ways to Trump. Mm -hmm. Trump's fan base, and, and is they really think Trump loves them. 
that he is talking to them and he's saying, we're going to do amazing things. We're going to do the oh, yeah. greatest stuff. You, you haven't seen anything yet. Our country is the best. Make, uh, and, and that's exactly what Driscoll's saying. Driscoll's more, even more intelligent and well-spoken than, than Trump. But, I mean, Driscoll's saying that. We are going to go here. We're going to do this. I, and, and you believed it because everything was run so well. But I got into a, a little bit of a tiff once because I led music. I let the opening band play a, a rock and roll song at the beginning before church had started and i wasn't even thinking about it i was like oh this is before church and we can do whatever just, they don't care about music you know i was fairly new and uh he got super mad about that because of the sermon that he was going to preach which is fine i can understand that but it, he wanted me to come to his office immediately and talk to him and then it just never happened and he, he got jetted away in a big suv and was gone and, <laughs> and i just i was really upset because the things that i was hearing secondhand felt really frustrating. And then I heard some other people talking about that incident bad about me and uh, that worked at the church at other campuses. They were saying that, you know, and I was like, wait a minute, this is a church and this is gossip. And how do all these people know this? And what are they saying about me? And so I, I want to have a conversation. And I went to my pastor at the time. I was like, hey, I, I, they, I hear people saying stuff about me. And even if maybe it's right, I'm not even here to say that maybe I made a huge mistake. But this is gossip, and I, I want to confront these people. I'd, I'd like, and they just kind of let it go away, and I wasn't able to actually face it. And at that point, I was like, "Something's wrong here. These people are scared to for me to pursue this. There, there's some bad stuff going on here, and you can't get out of this loop because everybody is just a little Driscoll protecting Driscoll in a way. It felt yeah. that way. There's another one I'll say coming downward that I think, uh, you know, tell me if this makes sense from any kind of you know, scientific point of view or something, but it's like the whole thing is this anti-hero situation. When you say Trump, it makes me think, well, he's a strong man and he gets all that from his wife. So if I behave like him, I'll get that. So then I behave that way to the other men that I'm leading worship over and to my wife, because I think this works, right? But ultimately it's just, it's it's mirroring down. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, and that sounds terrible to say it out loud like that. And it didn't, I didn't, you don't see it that way. But you just go, it just feel like, well, if that's, you just, uh, it's like the, I, it's, it's, it seems like it's related to the strong man. Like I wouldn't have enough confidence to do that, what he's doing, but maybe I can because he does or something that seems to be working for him or something right. is, is I kind of, and so then all the other, you'd feel like, I'd feel like I needed to bully people when I, where I wouldn't otherwise, <laughs> I think I had to, I have to look at them serious I when I tell them what to time them. practice right. is for b- b- worship. Right. And that'll work. And it, you know what? It did. <laughs> you know, it did work. Yeah. So yeah, no, now what? It's like, it's, then, like it's infectious. That kind of yeah, power dynamic yeah. becomes infectious. Or, yeah. or and what if your wife agrees with it? Yeah. Now we're, right. And if she says she agrees too. We're really, now we're really cooking. Yeah. Well, and then the sad thing is, is I would hear from people that there was this like silent, like, tension over that right mm-hmm. where like people acted like they agreed with it but internally they were really conflicted about it right. and then that would screw up their marriage Terrible. right absolutely 100 yeah, that's the you know, for it. I, always, I don't feel that masculine guy but i feel like i have to perform that masculine guy in that you know way yes. and then on the flip side the same thing for the women so they're supposed to be these passive submissive not gossip, right? I remember right. gossiping was always a thing for the women and wolves was always a thing for the guys, right? So it's like, you know, you don't want to be a wolf. You don't want to be a gossip. Right. And so that kind of control mechanism becomes internalized. And I mean, how would you ever feel good about yourself 
you know, like right. you're just feeling like you're always underperforming in some way. And, you, and that fear factor, that paranoia over that, like the shame, you know, like I've noticed that a lot, you know, that, that, that kind of like emotional kind of circulation of those, you know, really negative, um, but strong, you know, emotions that would become so internalized that we, you know, again, we're not really cognizant of how it's playing out in terms of our relationships. We're not clear about it. And yeah, it becomes scary, really. I'm not clear on exactly how he was so able to keep the women that are so, some of them are just the best women I've just ever known, the smartest and strongest. Like how, I don't understand. I understand how I fell for it. I don't understand what, or, you know, it makes me feel sad to think what pressure they must, those people who I respect so much must have been what they must have felt to go along with it. Cause like I said, it was be, it's easier for me to go along. It was naturally to them. I know they had to swallow a lot to go along with it. And that's, that's hard. I remember my wife, um, was, was, she was all in. Like, I mean, we were in, I was like, this is so great. This is most, my wife's ever been engaged with Christianity or something like that. And it was true because it was so highly demanding. It made us feel like we were both doing a thing there. And, and partly, I guess that was true, but at some cost, and she became more not liking Mark over time, at which point I would be apologetic to Mark for Mark about, you know, and I didn't consider she was right. I mean, that wasn't available to me. I was like, well, but you understand with the church growing, it's just, you know, gotta, it's like, yeah, but that's stupid. Why is he doing that? He said, he, I mean, it's like, well, don't be, don't be negative or critical heart or whatever, you know, right. like, but at some point it's just, I, right. she had been right long before I could uh, uh, be right, you know, and that, that sucks. I mean, but that's just, what could she do, you know, other than start to criticize. And then there's a division there between her and I, now what, you know? Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I, you know, some women had better relationships with Mark than others who are, and I'm talking leadership roles now, like deacons uh-huh. who are a little bit higher up and things like the women who would be speaking at these events that I'm, I'm talking about, right? Like the biblical womanhood event. And actually it's, it's redeeming female sexuality. That was the name of the, the other event. Um, and so, you know, they, they were really powerful. They were great speakers. I mean, they would be up on the stage commanding it, mm-hmm. you know, in their own way and owning it, you know, differently than Mark. But certainly I was always impressed by their leadership skills. These are really powerful. And it, it takes a lot of guts to like put yourself out there that way and make yourself that vulnerable to other people that you don't even know. Right. Like, so I was always really impressed by that. But later when I started talking to more folks, you know, some people felt somewhat okay about some things that might seem a little disturbing because Mark was okay to them, right? Like he never really had a problem with them per se. And the women that then maybe were a little bit more assertive or, you know, would say something in dissent on any level, it could be slight, um, but they would just get knocked down, you know, and, and it would get really, unfortunately, again, it would disturb the marriage as much in the way that you described, Matt, where the guy is kind of like, usually in a leadership role himself and feeling like protective of Mark, feeling like, okay, we're in this together. Come on, you know, making excuses for him, you know, wanting her to just kind of fall in line basically so that everything would be copacetic. Right. And, and yeah, it's, I mean, clearly it damaged a lot of marriages. Um, You know, some of them ended in divorce and some of them were just really fraught for a really long time. So yeah, he was able to like uh, tokenize enough women that it would get like, he was so that's another awareness he must've had is to put on the women's events, let the women see it and see these strong, powerful Seattle women, even liberal. And they're totally in line with him. 
that I mean that works pretty well. <laughs> oh, I think too it goes back to just that men were engaged. So their their girlfriends or their wives were like, yeah. "Whoa, my husband's never cared about church or felt this passionate about almost anything." And now he he's yeah. going to rallies and men's groups and doing all this stuff and so it made you think once again you were doing something right. Like I feel like with with my marriage I I thought you're right cuz he talked so much about sex and I was I I I had a really great conversation. That that's the whole the worst part about all this I did learn some stuff and was forever changed in some good ways too. I really was. So it, it, it caused a conversation with my wife and I of some of my sexual past and sexual thoughts that I, we had never really talked about. I was like, ah, I won't, I won't share that with her. I was able to share that with her in the thought of, oh, I'm going to treat her right and I'm going to do the honorable thing and I'm going to do all this. But now in retrospect, I realized too, I also was thinking, oh, and I'm going to get laid more. You know, you know, and like, like, and and I, I remember I thought I was doing all the right things. Like, I can remember telling Jess, I was like, "Hey, Jess, um, I, I want to have sex today. Do you feel like it?" And she said, "No, not today." I was like, "Hey, no big deal. I'm going to go to the shower and masturbate." And and I told her that, <laughs> thinking I'm doing I'm doing the right thing, right? Well, how honorable! But 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 now in retrospect, she she didn't want to hear any of that or care or anything. You know what I mean? Like I thought yeah. I was doing the godly, honorable man thing. Look at me. I'm gonna let you know you don't even have to take care. I'll take care of myself, babe. I love you that much. And but then this, you're clear a, from like like right. you said it or whatever. It's right. like you were doing some other thing. Like I thought I'm opening up conversation. I'm just being a leader here or something. And and I realized she what. What I was saying wasn't even like it, it could have been taken so many different ways too. Like then, did she feel guilty for not helping me and like her doing her womanly duty? I didn't even, I just didn't realize. I thought that it was attached. The bad thing was attached to the good thing, and it's so hard to pull those apart. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that whole discussion. It was a, it was interesting how also repentance really became weaponized there, right? And oh, yeah. that that kind of goes along with what you're describing, Toby. Where it's like. I remember, I think it was during the Peasant Princess series when Grace was on stage with Mark, you know, for that Q&A afterwards, and they do that thing mm-hmm. where people were texting questions. And, um, and there was one point where a question came up with basically like, should I confess to my wife when I have these urges about other women or urges to look at porn or whatever? And I remember Mark being like, yeah. And I remember Grace going, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, you know, maybe confess that to a friend, a guy friend, you know? because yeah, you can see the damage that would do. I mean, just imagine if that was happening every day. You know? right. Like, right. Well, see that, 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 that's what was supposed to happen. If you were a real man, you would have that every day going on. Right. Like, yeah, right. that, that right. there was a, something really strange about it that I'm only starting to understand now, like not even after one year or two years removed from it. Um, because it didn't feel at all like I was there to because Mark was gonna help me get sex. I mean, that isn't how it what was. If anything, I was like, holy shit, I probably have a porn problem. I've got so much work to do. No wonder I don't even have a good sex life yet. I've got so much work to do. I'm not even repentant. I'm not clear enough. I don't tell my wife. I don't. I haven't done near enough for her. Was that I felt in the position of not 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 i did not feel empowered like oh now i get to just go home and say pull out the complimentary complimentary card and get it wasn't that wasn't the way it was messaged it was the 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 males in some to some degree were like almost like you would think of as cucked or something like that it's just beaten down almost in a state where the repentance and that cycle 
uh, has done a crazy amount of damage to a lot of people I know to where they would talk each other into these horrific fights and confessional because the man made a sexual error and it was a tantamount to cheating on her because of a right. thought he had or something he looked at on Instagram. And I mean real destruction. I know women that hit men for that um and it was just all kind of whipped up when it shouldn't have been like like domestic abuse tons of divorces and then like even the women on the side of that 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 i mean i don't know another way to say it but bought into that like they were talked into being ultra traumatized by their husband's quote sin Right, and they were really hurt by what what a perverted sex addict husband they have that looked at the wrong image. Yeah, once. Yeah, or no, women were responsibilized for that. Yes, I mean, it was yes, really nutty. You know, it was really damaging. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm single. I was single there, and um, <laughs> I tell this story in the book. Actually, one of the things that I recognize is that like people, men and women both, um, you know, there would be that series of questions: How long have you been going to Mars Hill? Are you Christian? And people would look for a wedding ring on my finger. Like that was another right. gesture or another glance, kind of, you know, an embodied moment um, that I recognized a lot. And of course, it made me feel uncomfortable because I'm noticing people do this all the time. Like men and women both. For women, I think it was like I was a potential threat, right? Because of the way Mark again would talk about sex and how, of course, men are going to be desiring women all over the place, right? So if I was single, and I was just out there in the church, <laughs> you know, I could be a problem. I could be a potential problem. Um, on the flip side of that with men, it was kind of like a suspicion, right? Like, are you going to entangle me in your web of lustful desiring, you know? And, and so it was just, it just felt like, it's weird. It felt really sterile and really uncomfortable, you know, in a place where you're supposed to feel welcomed and like, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're there to evangelize and you're there to pull people into the church, again, the cultural stuff they had going on for sure, you know, and I was, I was definitely immediately, um, you know, impressed by all of that, the way that so, the media was used. But, but that feeling, those feelings of just like constantly being on guard all the time were definitely pronounced from a very early time when I started attending. Mm -hmm. Do you see these Mars Hill things, um, how do you speak about them being contained to this one-off of Mars Hill and, and pervasive in evangelical culture? Like what things about it stand out to you as, as each? Yeah, I think, you know, because I spent so much time there and I was so invested, I got so invested in the people there and, and really listening to their stories. Um, there's, so there's that very intimate and personal kind of aspect to it. But in terms of the way that Mark would preach about sex, I mean, that was a thing that was very trendy at that time in evangelicalism. Also, the way that, you know, the church was using media, right? Increasingly, those churches, you know, he Mark started off kind of in that emerging strain of the emerging church movement, right? So, so going multi-site, you know, having church planting, not only in the United States, but also abroad, right? Acts 29, um, you know, a lot of things that Marsville was doing was what a lot of churches that were trying to be kind of edgy, kind of culturally current, um, keep an orthodox or theologically conservative doctrine, but still appeal to younger folks and try to pull people in through their cultural kind of savviness, right? Um, you know, that was a trend that was happening, you know, in the mid to late 90s and definitely in the early 2000s when Mars Hill really kind of took off. Um, you know, so it was actually like 
a very indicative, I think, very indicative of what was happening in megachurches that were in that neo-reformed kind of vibe that John Piper, right, was, I mean, obviously he's a much older kind of statesman in that sort of, you know, movement, but, but there were, you know, those guys like Darren Patrick um, and, and others who were definitely in that milieu or that kind of, you know, cultural stream that Mark was cultivating through the resurgence and so many different things that the church had going on. Um, so it was, it was, it was very culturally current, I think, within evangelicalism, and it was not. I don't. I don't see Marsville as an outlier at all. You know, I think Mark's way sometimes of preaching, although as Toby was saying, I mean, it's very Trump-like, right? I mean, I think performatively speaking, the way that they kind of do the strongman thing, you know, play with taboos, you know, try to do non-PC you know, kind of straight talk with a lot of sarcasm and all that performative stuff that Trump does very well to kind of pull people into his sphere as well. Um, you know, Mark was very good at, and I, you know, I can't say that all of the other pastors were as good as he was at that. I think he was very special in that regard. Um, but I don't, but I think that the church itself and what it was doing was very much aligned with what lots of churches were doing at that time in that neo-reformed you know, not necessarily emergent because that's different, right? But the more conservative theologically emerging stream, as Mark liked to call it, which really became kind of more like that neo-reform, neo-Calvinistic, um, you know, movement. Um, and and Mark was, you know, he was the guy. He was the dude. You know, like yeah. I think a lot of pastors modeled themselves on him. You know, I mean, because the church was so popular and it grew in a place like Seattle. You know, the whole urban setting too. Right. right. So here you are in this liberal city um, and, you know, you're in this, you know, down, very close to the ballot is close to downtown Seattle. You know, you're, you're and then you're kind of branching out. But it's not just to the suburbs like Toby was, you know, and West Seattle. Right. So so you're branching out to these different kind of zones um, within the city proper, though. That was really I mean, that was a thing that was going on. That was a cultural thing that was going on within the church movements um, that were successful at that time. So. So I don't see Marcel as an outlier. I don't see Mark's preaching on sex as anything different than what a lot of those younger pastors were doing at that time. However, again, I would say that there were different things that were unique specifically to his style of preaching. Once I started, oh, sorry, I was going to agree with you. Once I started working there, uh, like, so one of the things that happened was I was supposed to be over the foyer of our church. And uh, the pastor at the time asked me to, uh, find some local artists and we could hang their their paintings or photography up in the front. And so I found some and uh, it was really cool and I was really excited about it. And I showed showed him and he was like, we can't use these. They're too feminine. And I was like, what? Wait. I was like, what? And I realized at that moment, I was like, oh, even in these little details, when you walk in the church and there's just local photography or local painters, it has to be look a certain way, like the look the, like that's, I think that is what set it apart from other pastors, or whatever. Every detail was like Mark Driscoll. I always felt like he intentionally brought his family up so they would look like the Kennedys or this almost like royalty, American royalty in a way. Look, look, we're doing this thing. We're the biggest, the best. Well, God has definitely ordained this to be huge. And it just felt like, and every single detail is what set uh, Mars Hill apart. And that's why it, it feels like, even like you're talking about, like Darren Patrick, uh, you know, he, he passed away, committed suicide. Um, and I, I feel like so many people were hurt from it. Like it, it felt like it used everything you had. Like I know you used the word labor. It felt like you did 
everything you could just to keep it going, and then it just it it you it couldn't have kept going. Maybe I, I like by the time you stopped towards the end of you, you're going there and, and writing your book. Had you already seen like a big change from everybody's on board to it getting worse? Um, I think that bylaw changes in 2007 and the controversies surrounding that um, were a big shift. And some people left, like about a thousand people um, left the church at that time because pastors were fired. Um, well, one pastor in particular was fired. A couple others were um, sort of put in the space of like, yeah, they're going to maybe retire. Or they're not quite the same, you know, in the same kind of authority. What, what changes were there? Can you tell us? I don't even remember. Well, um, so yeah, I remember all that. For example, the disciplinary processes became a lot more formalized. And, and so you had to re-sign your membership and kind of sign on to a disciplinary kind of contract of sorts, mm. right? Where, right. you know, again, all that stuff that we were talking about that was kind of more subtle and, and sort of understood but not spoken about was actually formalized too. So that when people did sort of, you know, did dissent in some way that um, trickled down into Mark, Mark's understanding or another pastor's understanding that they didn't like, then there could be a disciplinary process put into place that was very aggressive and micromanaging, you know, where people would have to write out confessions, you know, consistently. And like, it would never end, you know, it was just right. kind of like, you're constantly being put into this like sphere of like, you're a problem, you're a problem. And, um, you know, some of this stuff came up in, in some of the, uh, the, the media that came out in the, the stranger around 2012, 2013 as well. But um, so that happened. And then also just the power dynamic, it became the um, executive elder board, right? Then be put into place. That was the power consolidation was that bylaw. That's what the people that were removed or fired or Paul Petrie. And, uh, uh, exactly. Ben, I yeah. I know, um, you know, I didn't know them particularly, but they seemed like they were good natured people in our church. And then they, you know, we came to believe that they were really bad characters shortly yeah. thereafter, you know, that were, that, that oh. they wanted power apparently was the, or something. Yeah, it's surprising but, how many villains there yeah, were. There was some you know, villains in the board, it I mean, turns out. Yeah. And then it, they consolidated the power to just the executive, whatever, you know. Yeah. Those three, it was always the three guys handpicked mm -hmm. by Mark. Um, and the other thing that happened too, you, even in some of the smaller ways, like community groups, you know, they could never get too big. You know, Mark would always talk about like, well, you don't want these like bigger community groups then becoming their own little churches. Mm -hmm. You know, he really wanted to be the sole authority, you know, he really, and not just in the church way, but in a spiritual way that was really theologically problematic. Right. So the stuff that I'm talking about in relationship to the gender and sexual doctrine, you know, that really also he weaponized that as well right like he used that to his advantage so i would like to say it this way and it might sound obnoxious so back me off from this i'm not putting words in anybody else's mouth but i would like to suggest that mark was more skilled or talented you know he like you said he's one of a kind he wow you know there's that part of it which i still admire to be honest you know but uh but it's that's not unlike almost all other pastors in that system. Like you said, there's so many other that are that, that they are not an outlier from, except for Mark's, uh, you know, effectiveness, essentially. So to me, when a lot of people go, oh, but my church isn't that bad, and that doesn't sound that bad, 
if your pastor was more effective, it would be more like this. That's all. I'm sure the pattern, the structure, the shared knowledge is actually pretty similar. And yes, Mark was more effective and able to do better. But th these are the trends that if you had more dominant forces in a lot of these smaller, more stable churches, these are the dynamics that would emerge, is my belief. So you're in a pre-stage of that, and eventually it's a cult. I mean, it's a, these are pre-cult-like enterprises. Yeah, and I, that's why I always refrain from using that cult language, actually, because yeah. I never wanted you know, to attach that to Mars Hill. Uh, I mean, as a professor of religious studies, that's a kind of problematic and you know term anyway, honestly. But mm -hmm. but you know, it, it's definitely it, it definitely sets it up to so that you can just otherize that church or otherize those people and say, okay, you know, they were duped, right? Our church is fine. We're healthy. It's all it's all good. You know, they were as long as they're gone now, right? We right. can you know. And that's just simply not true. I mean, look at the sexual abuse cases that have happened and, you know, that have come to light, you know, in recent years, um, the whole Me Too movement then becoming um, church too, right? So, so yeah, I think, I think that there's definitely ways to think about how, though Mark had a certain kind of skill, again, I think of it more in terms of his preaching style than anything, but, and, and then using that ability um, to then sort of, you know, let people buy into his vision of what the church was supposed to be, which was this empire, right? According to my yeah. argument, right? Where mm -hmm. it would just keep growing and growing and growing. I would always hear him talk about this like multi-generational church that everybody was going to be a part of, right? right? And that's- It would never have stopped. If, it, if he could have continued, you know, what would have- I mean, yeah, I'm sorry to even interrupt you, but what, what, if he had even more capacity and effectiveness, where would it go? Where would it have gone? Yeah, I mean- that's a really good question. I, I kind of, you know, at the time that Mars Hill was starting to fall apart, I remember reading in a Forbes article about, um, you know, it being like the Enron of churches. And I thought that was a pretty, <laughs> that was a pretty savvy way to think about, you know, because it kept, you know, a lot of the things were all bells and whistles too, right? I mean, the fact that the, the, the church kept multiplying and kept buying real estate that it really couldn't afford to, Right. I mean, that came to light later on. And the fact that some of those so-called global monies weren't actually going to global right churches and helping other churches, they were all being funneled back into Mars Hill's network, yeah. right? So um, there were things financially, too, that came to light later on that showed that there was a lot of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes as well. So you could right. see that, you know, financially, it wasn't really a sustainable model. Yeah. I think he was, like y'all are saying, just he really is great at communication. I can remember, so let's see, it was probably the first week I was there. They had a, a big get together with all the campuses, and, you know, and I can remember that day sitting there and he started mentioning how uh, there are pastors and there's evangelists and there's apostles. And he, he just really spent time breaking all that down. And, uh, and I left there going, Oh, he's an apostle, uh, or is that what did I just hear? Like well, he was setting himself up even then. He thought he was just always looking bigger and bigger, but he slid it in there that he was more than just a preacher. He was, he was more than just an evangelist. Apostle. Yeah, he was getting an apostle because yeah. the way he broke it down, apostles also lead pastors. So apostles above pastor, which he is. It, it, but he didn't say that. He did not say he was an apostle. But you left there thinking, is he an apostle? You know, and like, and just that 
he slid stuff in. That yeah, was like exactly. my first so my first beautiful. week there working beautiful. behind the scenes, you know. And I, I was like, and I just realized every single thing is about, it, it, he is trying to control every single thing. You're right, even from the size of the small groups. Like, you don't want a small group to get bigger because, well, there was only 12 people and there were 12 disciples. So it, it was just, the way it was worded was great because it made you under, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that's what it is. So, okay. But you're right. What if a, if, in his mind, he probably thought if a small group got bigger, well, it'll be its own church and then I'll lose it. And I want to, that's my small group. Um, I want more and more and more. I want more buildings. I want more land. I want every state. I want to be everywhere. Like it really, I guess he really did. He probably is more like a CEO, a great speaker who's a CEO. I think that's the way he viewed the, even do you, did you get the idea, Jessica, that he thought of the congregation more as like a tool and assets than people or what? what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, because that goes back to that question of genuineness, right? Like how much of this was authentic for him, right? Like how much of this was he really buying into in terms of like, we are going to be this multi-generational church and it's going to be this beautiful thing or, you know, uh, this is all about me and my empire, right? And I mean, I think honestly more the latter, you know, I, I, but I certainly saw kindnesses too. It's not, you know, it kept coming up in a lot of these interviews that I had with folks later that, you know, he would always, you know, be kind. I mean, he would genuinely be kind to other people like that time when you were really, you know, kind of broke and he took you out to lunch or, you know, I saw, I talk in the, my introduction to my book about watching him after a really long, I think it was during, after one of the gospel classes that he actually, it was when they were still live and he, he actually was teaching that night. And um, I stayed behind to ask him a question. And I waited to the very end of the line because I just wanted to see him interact with everybody. And it's a lot of younger folks. Um, it was a super long line. I mean, I waited, I think, an hour to an hour and a half, you know, to like <laughs> wow. talk to him. And he did that. You know, he didn't cut people off. He listened to them. It was all very quiet and intimate, even though it was, again, in the big Ballard um, location. And, and he was kind. He was generally, he made people feel like he was very engaged in whatever they had to tell him or whatever they were asking him. And of course, like I was talking to these guys before who were standing in front before me, and they were just awestruck by him. You know, I mean, they were just like, oh my right. gosh, <laughs> I get to talk to more, you know, and then I could see them go up there and they're all nervous. And, you know, it was, and, and he was good with that. You know, he was generous with that. Yeah. So I don't want to say that like, you know, he didn't believe in certain kinds of human kindnesses, but at the same time, I mean, he would actively say, I don't want to talk to people. You know, like, I'm sure you all heard this too, right? Like you yeah. would talk about the fact that like, I'm the, what, the air war and the ground war, right? And the right. ground war yeah. guys are the pastors on the ground, actually counseling people and talking people and being with people. And I'm, I'm doing the air war, right? And, and that, again, that was kind of around 2007 or so that that really, that model started becoming more concretized at the same time that the executive board came into being. And you could kind of see this like division between the people who were going to be on the ground talking to people and they were lesser than, right? right. Mm -hmm. And then he and the executive elders were the guys who were like the CEO or COO types um, who were going to kind of run the show and they were certainly superior. Yeah, we, call, that they were, we called them central. Like, oh, that's that, that people at Central, you know, yeah. <laughs> us over here at the campus, Ballard campus, that's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
But all the money goes to Central, people would say, or something. And it did. <laughs> you know, it's like $40 per head per Sunday or something goes to – I don't know. It was breakdowns of all that. Kind and you can see, too, that, like, as he started publishing, you know, the books, sort of, like, ambitions became more to the forefront. Like, with Real Marriage, I think, is a real touchstone for that, right, with the results source scandal that happened. Mm-hmm, right. But, but you know, that – he went on tour with Grace, Right. And they did that whole book tour and they wanted to be on the New York Times bestseller list and promote themselves that way. I mean, so there was this real kind of push. So increasingly, they kept pushing for more of that, right? Like more of that kind of like public, national and international recognition. And were to some extent successful. But again, there were all these things behind the scenes happening in order for that to happen. Yeah, we were all fuel. Yeah, we were like all fuel for his blimp, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But But it's hard to say that he like callously or cynically just knew that it doesn't seem obvious to me that he had some full i mean his self-blindness is is critical a critical thing i think it eventually became a little bit more strategic right Mm. i think it had to i mean i remember like when i came back to seattle after being in miami that year and seeing like the sets you know, the set pieces were nuts. Yeah. I mean, it was like so much production value put put into the stages and, and, and like how the whole setup for Mark, you know, to just like come out again. And so when I saw him in 2006, okay, he was clearly like, okay, here's the worship band. He comes out like a rock star. But then it became like, you know, I remember him mocking Rick Warren in those days. And later he kind of wanted to be a little bit more like Rick Warren and appeal to a larger demographic. And you can't be the sarcastic Seattleite and do that, right? So he started to kind of change. You know, he was really good, too. He was a chameleon. He changed his own image as he needed to to start, you know, again, like getting that bigger kind of um, celebrity pastor kind of platform. Um, and then while that's happening, his own kind of production value and stage setups and all that stuff really increased. And so I do think, you know, that whole like I, I am the brand speech that kind of became famous because like pastors came out and talked about it later about yeah. how they're in this meeting. And he comes out and says, I am the brand. I remember in 2006 when he would say he would say things like, I'm not going to be on the side of a bus you My know, name's not was, on the website, he'd say. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. be the face of Marshall Church. I Like, he was actively saying I'm not right. the yeah. Right. And then he later was, you know, so that changed over time. He said he would preach about how if you go to a website and the pastor's got his face on there and his name, that's no good. You don't, you, you know yeah. not to go to that church. <laughs> if it was about the pastor, you know. Yeah, it's, so it, it definitely well, developed. Last thing I, w- I wanted to ask you, too, it, isn't it like— uh, human behavior, how the Christians, and this is what I just didn't understand and still don't, he just was able to kind of leave Seattle with his tail tucked between his legs and just go start again. Now, it w- maybe this one won't be as big. You know, maybe he's been knocked down a notch and he can't get back to where he was. But, I mean, he has a church and he is a pastor and who I don't he did not really apologize or seem to take as that much responsibility. He blamed everybody else. And it was all these other, you know, uh, one of the interviews I saw, he's like, uh, you know, I just did, there was all these people everywhere in different States. And I just hadn't, most of them I hadn't even met. And it is just like, he's clueless, but I know how meticulous he is with details. Yeah. He's, he's acting like he didn't know. And it, things were out of his control and all this stuff. And, and, He's not a liar, but he exaggerates some. Like him leaving Seattle, I remember there was all these crazy stories of people throwing rocks at his house and and his family's in danger and death threats and all this crazy. I'm like, what is what is this actually? Maybe that happened, but is it happening exactly like you said? Did, did, 
Did somebody, you know, throw an egg at your house as they were riding by in their car, and, and that all of a sudden became an assault and death threats? And I mean, he can is so good at communication; he makes it seem like it's that intense. But I don't understand how people can. Is it just that oh, that's Seattle, and I don't live there, and I don't care? Or what? What? How are people like Mark Driscoll able to keep going? I, you know, I I know that he a couple of the people that are still with him in um, Scottsdale in Arizona. I mean, they came from Seattle; they followed him mm-hmm. there. You know, I mean, he's really persuasive and he can really pull people in again, like again, Trump. Right. Like I'm seeing this phenomenon now and people's refusing to see the election for what it is. Right. Right, So, I mean, you know, on a smaller scale, Mark was able to do that. I mean, he was really able to convince people that, you know, this wasn't about him. He wasn't really the problem. right? Right. And I, you know, I honestly do see him as he certainly embellishes. And I mean, his stories, every time he tells that story about the death threats and his family being in danger, it's always, there's always more detail. (laughs) Like every time I hear that story and I I certainly heard it in the early stages of everything falling apart. But I mean, I've listened to another recent interview um, that he gave um, and he actually said, (laughs) he came out and said that the problems to the, about the church falling apart were internal and they were about transgenderism, his language, and um, gay marriage, because <laughs> internally people were not for biblical sound doctrine like he was, which oh, I never heard wind of that. No, right. Absolutely Zero. not. That was not the issue, right? We all know this. Right. But he gets away with saying that. So he continually, I would always hear him, like, even in the earlier years when I first started attending, like, I would hear these stories about the history of the church. He kept revising. Yeah, the oh, I, all the, the time. Church, yeah. You know, all like, the time. He would talk about me and these two guys I started with. You know, I know their names and everything. And then eventually they stopped disappearing. Then it was him in his living room with those. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, it was just nuts. So, so I mean, you know, that again, it's stra- it has to be a strategy, right? I mean, obviously, it's a power grab. So, you know, so he was constantly like, you know, buffering himself up. Um, and so now him being in Arizona, I, it's also interesting is that um, I don't know if you know, but this woman, Martha McSally, who is uh, running in the set for the Senate in Arizona, she was actually on stage with him and grace in that church in Scottsdale, uh, maybe a couple, two, three weeks ago. I think you could probably still find it on YouTube, but, um, and they gave her time to give her testimony. Right. Mm. And I mean, if that's not political, I don't know what it is. Right. You know, she's right. running for office in a content, contentious right. election. Right. You know, there she is on stage at his church, Trinity, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's like, okay, all under the guise of, of her testimony, call her up, you know, but it's just like, whoa, what is happening? So is I think, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how this continues to develop. I mean, I, I'm kind of amazed. They're, they came out with a, the King Grace came out with a new book about spiritual warfare now, you know, um, when yep. war. so, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how big that gets, but you know, this, again, he's rebranded himself successfully again, basically into this charismatic, a little bit more, you know, um, prosperity gospel more heavily than he used to do kind of thing, even though yeah. it was always about money. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see him rebranding himself and continuing to be able to do it. Do you think he has anything to tell us about Trump the way you're saying that Toby too, that like, uh, you know, 
he'll go reinvent himself in a smaller place and be left to, you know, do something like, will he, will it be the same kind of way? He'll leave the one place and then go have a, his other smaller thing. Is that what Driscoll Driscoll seems smart enough. Like it seems very clear to me, Trump's goal. Like now he's even kind of shitting on Fox news. He wants to start his own media company. I think there were rumors of that before he did. I don't even think he thought he was going to win in 2016. And then he did. And so now I think he's just setting himself up to look the same way as what Driscoll right. did. Exactly. Trump, Trump is saying it's everybody else. Look at those Democrats. Look at those liberals. They're doing all this. They've done bad. They've been, okay, I'll be the big man here and leave. And then he goes and starts his own thing. But I mean, tr- yeah, both of them are probably smart enough is. to, to try to, they, they learn from their mistakes and, and maybe they'll even have a tighter grip now, but they're, they'll align themselves. Like you said, with the politician, they'll, They'll probably align themselves with people and influencers and maybe make it grow. But I'm just shocked that a pastor is supposed to be a shepherd. And that's why I was thinking, like, if maybe I felt like maybe thought of the congregation as assets and a tool. Look how big the congregation is. Look at this. I can leverage this congregation to get this thing. And, you know, I'll use, like, it's not really bad to, to pay to get on the New York Times bestseller list because. The goal is this, and he's told he told himself those things too. I believe yeah. he believed it. Oh yeah, the and, way that and, the, the church would public metrics about baptisms, you know, oh. you know, advertising that all the time, right? Yeah. Look at how many baptisms we have. And it's like you shouldn't be using that as leverage, you know, to promote right. yourself. Right. <laughs> and that's where that question of genuineness comes in, right? Like, right. you using right. this, like you're saying, like as an asset, like that's just you know. But it's certainly similar, and I mean, I, I, there's a lot to learn. It, it, it's strange that, that the the way these things are playing out, even with our politics and stuff like that now, like with with somebody like Trump, that the idea of that it it isn't maybe it it's the appearance of a strong man that can make the strong decisions and know what's right, and and I think that appeals to people, especially a lot of men, because you know a lot of men feel lost or unsuccessful or didn't have a father figure. And Mark Driscoll's the strong guy that wants to throw the baseball with you and also tell you get your kick your ass a little bit so you get your ass in gear and reach your goals. And so it feels that way. I think a lot of people think that like Trump stands up for them. That, you know the that those people in uh, on, on the left coast always shit on us over here, but Trump won't let them get away with it. And they, they so it's like a it's sad in a way because Trump and Driscoll, I think at least realize they can use that to their advantage. Trump's going to hold a Bible, yeah, not because of the Bible. He's gonna, Mark Driscoll's holding the Bible and having to get stuff, yeah, and he knows it. And that's a, that's the real sad part that people like, like me. Now, I don't even feel bad for myself, but I'm saying I bought in hook, line, and sinker. I was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to become a better man. I, that, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? <laughs> that well, part seems right. And but. that's where you get full circle with the make you know, just where it's like, man, the Bible is really clear about those people that really know yeah. like that like you said to me they know what how to do it and what they're doing and why it's working right. so woe, you know woe to wait woe to those yeah. people well jessica we really appreciate it the book is called biblical porn effect labor and pastor mark driscoll's evangelical empire where else can people find you is there any other things you want to send people towards uh, well, I'm starting to do work on conspiracy theories and um, those intersections. You can find some of my newer work and then some bite-sized articles around Mars Hill um, at my academia site. It's okay. just jessicajohnsonacademia.edu, and I'm at the College of William & Mary. So if you Google that, you're going to find my stuff. Awesome. When you get done with your uh, conspiracy th- theory stuff, will you come back on? I, we'd love to talk about that. Oh, I'd that. love to. Yeah, That'd we kind of have a thing going here where we feel like our – 
podcast and the culture that we kind of built of because we did Mars Hill to this almost continuously. We've kind of done our whole podcast journey as a deconstruction from that kind of publicly. So, you know, we have and uh, our whole BC club that's our that's our support group and everything is a bunch of people who's had similar journeys. And so from where we've sit and had this seeing the whole Mars Hill thing and then seeing the thing and the thing, our heads are in the same place that conspiracy theories and pre-cult like social systems and groups and grifters and all those things are really on a rise. And we, we really feel that to give more people experience and stories and tools to assess and analyze them as they see them rise. I I feel that they will be a a real problem in our future. It's really important work actually, you know, it's really important. So thank you both for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, man, that was great, man. I would have been so nervous sitting there in the pew, like doing research, and she was honest about it. She told him what she was doing. I would have lied my ass off. <laughs> but I promise you, I would have. To these things, I'd know. have none. I don't have any. I would be when fear comes in. I start lying. Yeah, exactly. That's my go to. And by I'm, fear, I'm, you just mean feeling weird in public. Yeah, just even a hair awkward. <laughs> I'll start lying. If you it's feel evolution, slightly man. socially awkward, your ethics out the window. It's evolution. There wasn't no ethics back then. Back in the day when you crawl on, you know, swimming, crawl, uh, grew two legs or something like that, you have to lie your ass off because I would have been nervous. Of uh, First of all, I would have thought as soon as I tell the truth, I can never come back here or something. You know what I mean? Like my whole project, my whole everything that I've been working on yeah. might be compromised. So what if I just said a little, you know, fibbed here or there, something like that? I, I would have just lied. That's like but, the quality, uh, though, that you have to have to be a good journalist. You're you right. Know? Like, you know, people yep. shit on journalists a lot. But in like over time, the archetype of good journalist is somebody that can really handle social discomfort well to right. try to get to the truth, you know, or something. Yeah. Like that, that is an admirable quality. It's not necessarily the one that you see in, I don't think, a lot of journalism or study I don't today, have it. but it doesn't work as good on Twitter. It's not, you know. I mean, I lie any anytime I can. You know, like I, it, when we've been in the airport and I'll use the family restroom when I'm by myself and I'll mm-hmm. walk out with like a limp or yep. something and I've just lie. You do it. I mean, you've seen me do that. I, I just, you know, I, I'll just, I'll act oblivious or whatever I can because I, I, once I get caught doing something, I'm like, I got to get out of this. I can't yeah. be caught. You, you and can't face, face the, consequences. the consequences of your own actions. That would be. I mean, that's, that's just, just horrible. Yeah, I having to face the consequences it, of your own actions. I think that's like of the devil. Yeah, that's just. <laughs> hey, I mean, seriously. Good lord! I mean, I've often thought about the devil. Oh, if really? you were, if you were loose, yeah. <laughs> when I've talked to him at night. Uh, what if you were an the highest angel of all? That means your intelligence and skill has to be pretty phenomenal, mm-hmm. right? Because you would you would have to think biblically that angels are better than humans. Well, they've been mentally around, and they're, physically they're, they're immortal. So, you, like, how much right. more will you know in a couple thousand years? Right, exactly. If even so, if they had your same brain processing, so power, the, they would know a lot. So we are told that Lucifer was bad just because he thought. Man, I'm awesome, and maybe I could be like God. Yeah, right. That doesn't yeah. sound horrible when you think. What else is there after? I mean, what what is he supposed to aspire to? He's number one angel. Who's left? Well, my my boss's son, mm-hmm. and then me, and yeah. and, and and then him, and then it's me. I'm I, I guess I can't. You know, I'm, I'm uh, nepotism much, God. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, like, oh wait, maybe, all, maybe, I'm the top guy. There, oh, let me right. guess. There's one other really awesome guy you're gonna let in the inner circle there. Oh yeah, wait, you don't, your son. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Lucifer was like, "Hey, I'll do that whole dying for everybody. Let me shoot me down there, God." <laughs> and Jesus is like, "Ah, 
Uh, well, my dad, son, though, I kind of let me do it, Daddy. And then yeah. you're like, I mean, and now you know, now we all hate Lucifer forever, yeah. and he burns in fire forever because yeah. Jesus was like, uh, Daddy, I want to go down and and hang on the cross for everybody's sins. And then you're like, oh, and then Lucifer is just evil because he's like, well, guess I can't. So then he fell from heaven like a comet to the earth and became a snake. <laughs> It seems like he got a raw deal. I, I know he's the king of evil. He's everything bad, I guess. But I mean, it's, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't that bad. He, yeah, maybe he has a point of view, right? He might have a point. I'm not, you know, not me. I mean, but I'm saying it, I could see probably he does have a point of view, right? I mean, it, it seems like when you do stuff that he likes to do, it's more fun. I know you get it's wrong, but it seems more fun, right? Yes. I mean, what, what would you rather do? Go party with a bunch of demons or, you know, let some walk through a street and let some lady touch the hem of your garment and heal her? Which well, sounds more fun? Well, they both have their perks, I guess. <laughs> How did we get here? I don't even know. I don't know. Y'all join the BC Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see ya. <laughs> Could somebody tell me how to get this old Toyota out of my driveway so I could drive the way back to your house? The snow won't let up, it won't let me go. So I could find you and let you know that I'm lost. I just want to hold you again. And don't get me wrong, all these presents are nice, but my head keeps spinning, I can't get you off my mind. If there was just one gift I could open tonight, it'd be you by my side. I've been thinking what to say so I don't lose you on Christmas Day. But you're probably With your mom and dad So I'll just dream that I'm with you Opening the presents too And remembering all the love that we once had Oh, oh, oh. 
Just one gift I could open tonight. It'd be 